When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On a night where Tom Brady returned to his old home where he won six Super Bowls and Major League Baseball just avoided chaos, we are talking preseason hockey. Farhan Lalji and Thomas Drance on the latest edition of the VanCast. And Drance, did you have one eye on the game? The Canucks, a big 3-2 win over Winnipeg in the preseason? I'll be honest, I PVR'd it, Farhan. I PVR'd it. I watched it after the game was nearly over. Like, yeah. I, I started it after the, the game was... Well, basically, once I realized that New England and Tampa Bay was a clunker, um, I decided to get to it. I know it had a fun ending, and I missed that, but uh, just wasn't a great game of football at the end of the day. Uh, so it goes. But and the, I'm here. I know. I'm sorry, man. How is it? Now, don't be sorry. It's, it's, it's good being here, but I kind of feel like I should be at Game 8 of Canucks and... Boston from 2011, just because I'm in Boston right now doing this. <laughs> Some Cody Hodgson sweet post music ringing oh, yeah, through Foxborough. Um, yeah, well, I'm you know you're coming at this right after uh, a big NFL matchup. Um, obviously, we'll get into the Mariners and the Blue Jays at the tail end, so that people don't tune out if they haven't already tuned out since we started a Canucks podcast with Tom Brady talk. But yeah, let's talk Canucks. I mean. It's been an eventful few days for the club. Tons of injury news to unpack from Jim Benning's availability. Uh, obviously, Pedersen and Hughes met the media for the first time since signing their new deals. Tons to unpack from those contracts, especially now that we have a sense of structure and term. And there was a preseason game. Actually, there have been two preseason games since we last recorded Farhan. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, let's start with the contracts for both Pedersen and Hughes. And you know, we reported them earlier. We talked about them in our emergency pod. The number was a little lower than we thought as far as Elias Pettersson's concerned. But nonetheless, we, we don't want to necessarily break down the term and the actual dollar, but the structure may matter a little bit more here. So after the two had to talk to the media, it got delayed. We not, we thought that on Saturday they were going to make these deals official and we get a chance to talk to them, but it actually took an additional day. One would presume that that meant both players had to go through medicals and things of that nature. And when you know what Petey went through a year ago, probably a prudent thing for the Canucks to do to make sure they go through a great deal of detail with that process before putting pen to paper on these deals. But now that you've seen the structure, and we've certainly seen in Pedersen's deal, he's going to make $10.25 million in the final year. Not necessarily what an impact that a deal like that or a number like that would have with, let's say, a guy like Brock Besser, where his final year deal is going to be a starting point for his next negotiation. This is going to be a little bit different than that because of what the maximum impact of that could be. So just how do you unpack that deal first? The Pedersen deal, I think there's a lot to unpack with the Pedersen deal. I mean, you're right. It's only the 8.82. Like, it's not a $10.25 million QO or anything. Uh, It's almost, I mean, the backloading on it is massively significant. Definitely trying to duck the... Uh, post-pandemic escrow payments as much as possible 
And that's just sharp business by, by CAA. I'm sure it suits the Canucks' interests, too, as they begin to move past this pandemic and ideally into a full capacity building from a 50% capacity building the way they opened tonight for the first time in almost 600 days. But, you know, the main thing for me, like the main thing that I look at and take away from the Pedersen deal is, you know, my concern with it, right, is, and and the thing that's getting talked about a lot is the control that he'll have because he's got that 8.82, you know, QO that last year. Can he walk himself to free agency? Like, I think that's a really overblown talking point, Farhan, for this reason, like, you can, you can do it. And and I mean, you accept the QO or you file for player elect arbitration, right? And if you're better than that, I mean, you can still get your one year award. If you're dead set on hitting free agency in 2025, like you can do that for sure. But you can always do that anyway. Like you can always do that. There's also a ton of risk that a player takes on in signing a short term deal. Like, this risk is much more shared than it is when you go long term between player and team, right? Guaranteed salaries in the NHL, like you commit $80 million to a guy who's played 150 NHL games. Uh, that's a much bigger risk for the team than than the idea that if a player was so inclined, they could risk, you know, their health status or performance falling off or, you know, any myriad of factors that a player would have to have to take on in order to decline a long-term offer from their current club, right? I mean, and then and then pursue either through arbitration or accepting your QO, like one year with no security to get to the point where you hit unrestricted free agency. Like there's so many leverage points that a team has, including the ability to present him with a long-term extension, you know, before the 2023, like right after, in the summer of 2023, the Canucks can present Pedersen with a massive long-term deal, or he can play it out for two more seasons in order to hit unrestricted free agency. Like there's so much risk on the player's side in taking that route. I think things would have to be pretty miserable in Vancouver for that to become a realistic possibility. Team still has a ton of different leverage points to avoid that. For me, that's an overblown talking point. The one though that does concern me, Farhan, is the cost certainty angle. Like when you look at what this Canucks team now has to do, and we talked about this a little bit on the podcast, like you are going to realize some savings, cap savings, in terms of the value that Pedersen's going to provide on the ice versus the value that his 7.35 cap hit takes up, right? He is going to outperform this contract over the three years. I think you can feel pretty safe in declaring that. That's a very, very likely probability uh, over the life of this deal. That's good for the team in the short term, uh, but the concern for me is, you know, you're now locked in to needing to significantly upgrade your blue line with very few top end prospects coming, right? Oliver Ekman, Larson, Tucker Pullman, Tyler Myers, and Hughes now all locked in through a minimum of 2024, right? All locked in for three or more years, six in uh, Ekman, Larson, and Hughes's case, four in Tucker Pullman's. And, and you're going to have to upgrade that group while they're all committed, without a ton of prospect capital coming that has significant pedigree on the back end, I guess beyond Jack Rathbone, while also key players, Besser next year, Horvat the year after, and then Pedersen the year after that, again, um, you know, all come up, all come up and become more expensive. So it's like, it's just such a tough tightrope to walk, and they have to walk it. 
it just locks them in for me, Farhan, to this situation where they're going to have to recreate what they did this summer, right? In order to reallocate salary and upgrade and improve. And, you know, solving your problems, like solving your problems the way the Canucks did this summer, that's essential work that you have to be able to do and do effectively in the NHL, in the salary cap era. But it's better to like have some runway, plan long-term and not make mistakes. But the Canucks now for me are locked into the situation where year after year, whether it's trading futures, whether it's taking on toxic assets, whether it's, you know, making some higher risk gambles than you otherwise might have to, like they're kind of going to have to do this year after year in order to get this blue line in particular to a point where they're going to be able to contend around this team and realize and benefit from going short on the Pedersen deal. That's my concern here. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I think it's a fair concern because when you look at what they've done in terms of how they cleaned up previous messes, really all they did was kick the can down the road. When you look at what's happened to the goaltending situation as well in terms of extending Luongo's recapture as far as the practical effect of what's going on with Brayton Holby and their yeah. current goaltending. And then on top of that, you know, you've got the goal, you've got the defenseman situation, as you mentioned, with Ekman Larson or, and whether or not Myers, what that deal is going to look like over the next three years as well. So, yeah, it's it's a challenge. There's no question. But now you've got a little more certainty in Quinn Hughes, both in terms of cap hit and in terms of term and certainty in that regard. So do you take from one to feel better about the other? I mean, for me, it's just about looking at the overall position. Like going long on Hughes was essential because there was no other way to pay him fairly. Uh, in my view, right? Like there, there just was no other realistic solution that paid him at anything that looked appropriate. And, you know, I think this is my takeaway for both of these deals, Farhan. Like this is a full contact hockey market, right? Like we've been talking about these deals forever, forever talking about their impact on the team and projecting what they'd look like. And, you know, they come out and they're unremarkable. Like they're really unremarkable contracts, right? It's a 5% raise for Pedersen over what Matt Barzell signed his bridge deal for. And, and with Hughes, you know, it's it's a big deal. Like, it's a big deal. It's the fourth highest second contract for a defenseman in NHL history, uh, or at least in any, in the history of the NHL in the cap era. But, you know, it's it's basically a mini version of the Macar deal, right? Like, it's a, it's a mini Macar. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of problems with it, at all, to be honest with you. I think the Hughes deal makes a ton of sense. Um, if, if I had sort of one thing that I'd wonder about, it's that, you know, with Pedersen, we've kind of seen him, like, even last season when he didn't play at his best, especially early on in the year, like, his level's kind of been the same year after year. It's like he's improved his two-way game a bit. Maybe his finishing wasn't quite as good in the first, in the 26 games he played. Last year, as it had been in the years prior, but like, you know, for the most part, we've seen Pedersen be, bring the same speed of fastball every season. And, and that speed of fastball, like, it's fast. <laughs> it's, he yeah. throws flames. With Hughes, we've kind of seen two different seasons, right? Like, we've seen him be this dynamic two-way force that probably, you know, had the type of impact where he should have been closer in Calder voting. Uh, in one year, in his rookie season. And then we saw this other season where, you know, his defensive game struggled a bit and the club wasn't sort of changing the gravity of the game in quite the same way when he was on the ice. 
in which he wasn't key to outscoring the Canucks' opponents on a night-to-night basis of five-on-five, right? For me, if you're going to go long on a guy, like, don't you want to go long on the guy that's sort of maintained the same level over 150 games, as opposed to the guy who you've seen be absolute electricity for 70 games, and then just kind of at a lower level in terms of their two-way assertiveness, like significantly lower over another 60? You know, like, for me, you take the sure bet and place it long. And I, I do sort of wonder, and, and I had some people in the industry sort of point this out to me, like, did the Canucks make the long-term bet on the wrong guy here? Uh, and I think there's a good argument for that. Like, I can see what people are saying there. But the long-term bet on Pedersen would have cost them a lot more than what the long-term bet would have for Q, for Quinn Hughes. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, that's that's the nature of, of rights and on and on. I mean the surplus value, um, you know, would have been higher too, right? Like the the fact is, is that there's a more risk in placing a long-term bet on Quinn Hughes for the team than there is on Patterson, in my view anyway. And so, you know, that that was uh, a very experienced negotiator in this industry pointed out to me that, you know, if you flipped it, it might make a little more sense to them. And I found that hard to argue as I considered it. Like, I, I do think that, you know, maybe, maybe, no, not even maybe, like pretty clearly from their track records, right? The surer bet went short and the more volatile bet in terms of what Hughes is likely to be uh, went long. And, you know, at the end of the day, I would have preferred long-term deals for both. So I'm not going to criticize the Hughes outcome. I think it's a fair deal. I think it's a solid one. I think like the Pedersen deal, it's relatively unremarkable. Hughes, despite being a pretty much historic uh, point producer as a young defenseman in his first two seasons. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think he he didn't like break the mold, right? He didn't he didn't establish a new precedent, and he probably had the track record where he could have come close to it. Um, and you know, I, I, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think they're both fair deals. Uh, but you know, I do sort of wonder like there is more volatility in the long term bet they placed on Hughes. Still, the right call, but. That short-term deal with Patterson, I mean, that one is, you know, not not hard to swallow because it's going to be a team-friendly deal for the next three years. Like, it's a good contract. It's just that in terms of the overall positioning for the team, does it serve their interests best? Um, I don't know that it does, but Farhan, as you know, they were locked into this. They were locked into this because of how they prioritized their offseason. Yeah, no, there's no question. They left themselves with no other choice because of how late they got into these deals. But I also think on the flip side, the representatives and the two players, I think they both wanted optically to make sure that they their cap hits were similar. Because when you look at it, if you wind up going long with Pedersen, that costs you $9 million. And if you go short with Hughes, you're looking in the mid to high $5 millions. So that breaks that mold a little bit. And optically, that might not be where the representatives necessarily wanted to go as well with this type of negotiation, right? So I think that also allowed them to have fairly similar value to treat the two players equally in terms of what their AAVs are, if that was important. And I know you had made the point earlier that you thought that that was important to the players, to their agent, and to the club to kind of work them in to a similar number. Yeah, performatively equitable has been sort of the the catchphrase I'd used. And I think that's right, and I think they achieved that. And I, I don't think that... Like, I do think it makes sense, ultimately. And I do think they've also given themselves that weapon that they can use in 
upcoming Besser negotiations and upcoming Horvat negotiations, right? They've now established this sort of cap structure with Hughes at the top, Pedersen, and then Oliver Ekman, Larson, and on down the list that actually makes sense finally for the first time. Like there's no more Louis Erickson top paid Canucks forward, right? Uh, that that does matter. Like that does it matter. Does. And, and it also lubricates deals, right? Like it makes hockey trades a little bit more straightforward as well. So, you know, we'll see sort of how that plays out. But yeah, I mean, that's one facet of the deal that I think made sense, um, that I think was sharp. And, you know, uh, that I think the Canucks can look at the outcomes here and say, yeah, that's good. And and look, there's a lot that they can look at here and say, that's good, right? Like the, the, that's a good outcome. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that, the Pedersen comps ended up being more like Barzil Point and Kachuk as opposed to Rantanen, Marner, and Kaprizov. I mean, I think that's a win too. Um, but, you know, also Pedersen had that down year. He had that injury-plagued season. He only had 21 points. Like, if you were ever going to get a decent outcome on a second contract, sort of leveraging that weaker platform year, like this was kind of it. And by going short, you've also missed that opportunity to some extent. Although, you know, that's complicated and I'm not criticizing the club for that, just pointing out the negotiating reality that this might have been your best shot ever to get any type of discount on on Pedersen. And instead, you've just kicked the can down the road and given him three years to be one of the top centermen in the game, which I'd argue he already is, right? He can do it consistently over three seasons. I mean, that valuation on the third deal is going to be sky high. But, you know, that's not what you worry about so much as making sure that you're good enough to take advantage of this window that you've now opened up around Pedersen. So the Canucks get Pedersen and Hughes back. They're expected to be on the ice with the team on Monday and not expected to play in the game on Tuesday. So later on in the preseason. So they probably get a couple of preseason games in. That is part of the Canucks roster dilemma. The others include Travis Hamanick, Brandon Sutter, uh, Tyler Mott and others. The subject of Travis Hamanick has come up again. And there are a lot of people believe that it might not be purely vaccine-driven. There are some other legitimate factors here going on with Travis Hamanick where he is not ready to return. We do know that he did not opt out based on, uh, I think, where we when we did our emergency pod. I don't think we had that news yet, but he's decided no, not to opt out. So there's more involved here, and we have no sense of timeline because it's not necessarily five weeks and you get your vaccine and both shots and two weeks after and you get to come back. So... What can you tell us and how do the Canucks handle whatever it is, whether we want to discuss it publicly or not? Yeah, I mean, we'll see how they handle it. It's going to be fascinating to watch this play out. You know, there's a ton of different options uh, available now that Hamannick has opted in, right? Uh, He's opted in. He's not with the team. The reasons for this entire thing are not official. No one is confirming anything. Uh, speculation is rampant and everyone knows that Hamannick has always prioritized family and uh, marched to the beat of his own drum in, in a variety of ways. But I mean, you know, I think it's hard to, the comments and the way that this is framed as a personal matter, um, the uncertainty that lingers around it. I think it's, there's no question that it's been agonizing for the player, but I find it really hard to not view this pretty cynically, Farhan, just because we are talking about the year 2021. We know how things have been set up in terms of 
basically requiring players to be vaccinated if they're going to have anything like a normal experience this season and not forfeit a ton of money, particularly if they play in Canada. And and I just find it very difficult to take the non-cynical view uh, of everything that's going around and uh, going going on here in terms of overall positioning. Um, so we'll see where it ends up. But, you know, one thing that the Canucks are basically locked into after the Ham- Pedersen and Hughes deals, and this will be true probably, probably, but not necessarily, uh, whether or not Hamannick is in camp or not, is there's going to be a ton of unavailable bodies that have to be accounted for within the club's overall cap structure. And we know the team doesn't have a lot of space. Like, we know the team now is going to be over the cap and will need to use off-season LTI in some respect, right? And and here's all the here's all the bodies that we're talking about. Like, we're talking about Brady Keeper. People don't probably think of this because Brady Keeper wasn't necessarily projected to make the team, but because he got injured at training camp, like, that's an NHL-level injury, right? Like, that will have to be accounted for on the cap. He will be on IR or LTI when the season opens, right? Then you've got Mott, who Jim Benning confirmed wouldn't be ready for the season uh, today. Not a huge surprise there. Then Brandon Sutter, uh, Jim Benning also confirmed wouldn't be ready to start the season. So there you've got just in those three guys. I mean, we, we all know about Furlan's 3.5, but those guys are 3.3 together. And then you've got Hamnick's three, right? So that's five guys that, that are going to be accounted for. Like they have to be accounted for in some respect, whether they end up counting against the cap, whether they end up on LTI, whether they end up in some other protocol or program or what have you. Like they're, they have to be accounted for. So how does this team do it? Like they're pretty much locked in now to needing offseason LTI. And what's interesting about this, Far- Farhan, is that they've got this, like on w- one level, the fact that you have these five guys makes things more complicated in terms of managing things and capturing the right amount. And, you know, again, this is all complicated. You can't. On cap friendly, if you're playing in armchair GM mode and you move a guy over, right? You move a guy on LTI, that 3.5 million just disappears. But that's not how it works in real life. Like if you have 10 million in salary cap space and you put a guy on, uh, and you put Michael Furlan's 3.5 on LTI, Farhan, you don't have 13.5 million in cap space. You have 3.5 million in space. Like that's how capture works in, in effect. Like you need to get as close to 81.5 as possible, then put a guy on LTI. Right. And then you, you can exceed the cap by the amount that you've captured. And then if you've got more bodies, like you have to keep doing it. You have to keep maximizing your capture. And so it's going to be a really complicated dance for the Canucks to figure this all out. And Hamannick's status being uncertain adds an additional layer of complication to it. But, but counterintuitively, by giving yourself all of these options, you like, by, because there's so many bodies, with so many different cap hits that you're going to have to account for here, like you also have a ton of different outs. Like every guy is also a possible uh, way of solving the problem. So, so it's like it's more complicated, <laughs> but it's also there's also more versatility in terms of routes that the club can take to shape their opening night roster and maximize their overall cap space and spend. Um, as the season sort of begins, as this offseason progresses and, and gets to opening day. That's sort of where this Hamannick story is really interesting for me, is like, how exactly is he going to fit in at this point? 
how will that interact with their ability to, say, make a contract offer to a guy like Alex Chason in the event they decide to do so? Um, and, and what sort of space exactly are the Canucks going to have to play with, both in creating their opening night roster, but then also getting guys like Mott, like Sutter, back into the lineup? <laughs> a guy like Hamannick in the event that he at any point plays for the team this season. Like getting those guys back onto the roster and being cap compliant throughout it, like that's going to be awfully tricky for this club to manage in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, I mean, and you wonder just how aggressive they'll be in trying to replace Hamannick with another body that's not currently in the organization right now. Very. Because as you mentioned, they've got outs, they've got options. And it certainly doesn't appear that Travis Hamannick is going to be with this team on opening night. It certainly does not appear that Brandon Sutter is going to be with this team on opening night. And Tyler Mott, of all of them, seems to be the, the most likely, but even that's not likely. So just he's just farther along than the other two at this point. But, you know, maybe he is going to be close enough that he doesn't become an LTI possibility. But the other guys, you can certainly look at that and think that that is a real thing right now. So you think they're going to be fairly aggressive right now in terms of trying to replace Hamannick on the right side? They have to be. They have to be. I mean, Pullman, Myers, Luke Shen is not going to cut it. No team makes the playoffs with a defense core like that, Farhan. Like, you know this. We know this. You do not make the playoffs if that's your roster. Like, if that's the right side of your defense, you're not a playoff team. It almost doesn't matter how good everyone else is. Like, you cannot make the playoffs like that. You're never going to spend time attacking. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, they need to. They need to find at least a guy to play with Quinn Hughes. Like, at least a guy to play with Quinn Hughes. Because right now, I mean, I don't think you really want to play Myers and Quinn Hughes together based on, you know, how the coaching staff in their usage has demonstrated they rate the defensive game of both of those players, right? Like, so, so then you're looking at splitting up this Oliver Ekman Larson Pullman pair that's played pretty well at camp. Like they had another really good game on Sunday against Winnipeg. Um, and probably playing like Hughes Pullman and then playing Myers Ekman Larson and then Rathbone or Hunt and Shen. Like it's just, it's, it's not good enough. It's not close to good enough. And yeah, I mean, I think they have to, like they have to get a guy who can play not just third pair, not just bumping Shen out of the lineup, but ideally play top four, like play with Quinn Hughes. I think otherwise, you know, the integrity of this all around, uh, overall defense core is like pretty fundamentally, uh, to use my catchword, uh, is pretty fundamentally compromised, to be totally honest with you, Farhan. That's how I see it anyway. Yeah, no, it's hard not to agree with that. You know, we, we know that this group was flawed even with Travis Hamannick. So without him, it, just makes it that much more concerning and you just don't know how they can enter the season that way and when you look up and down the organization there's no obvious fit that could potentially go there so we'll see we'll see who's available we'll see what they're willing to give up to get them we'll see what happens with chase on in terms of whether or not they've seen enough there to bring him in and how that's going to affect their cap and their ability to then improve the right side of their deed lots of questions still one other quick question brock besser um they believe he'll be back for opening day what what do you think yeah, probably. I mean, that makes sense to me. Uh, you know, he's not going to play again in preseason. That I, I always read that as pretty precautionary. But look, we've got a lot of practices, right? Like, we'll we'll have a good, better sense of this 
over the course of the next week based on is he out after practice, right? Like, is he on the ice? Uh, can we see him shooting and stuff? Like, is he doing normal things? Uh, you know, for me, not a concern at this juncture, especially with a week or more timeline on him. Like, that gives him, you know, time to get ready anyway. Like, he, he has a week to 10 days to get ready. Um, but, you know, I, I would say the Besser injury just adds to a funky overall vibe, right? To this training camp. Like, this is a really high stakes season for this organization. This has to work, right? This has to work for him. And they've gone through this camp. You know, Pedersen and Hughes just got done. Besser's now out for at least the balance of the preseason. Uh, Mott, Sutter, you know, you throw this Hamannick uncertainty in. I, I mean, there's a funky overall vibe in terms of just a lack of continuity, a lack of bodies. Um, you know, I, I do sort of wonder what impact that has, especially as the club looks to integrate all these new players. This is certainly not the training camp that they would have drawn up, ideally, right, if they could have. And so I do think that poses some real challenges and, you know, is potentially a real threat to the club getting off to a hot start. And, and that hot start's an absolute necessity, I think, considering where the expectation level is, considering all the assets that they've thrown into this season, like pushed in the middle of the table on this season. Uh, you know, this is, um, this is, we're not at crunch time yet, and we won't be until the games start to count. But, you know, it feels like there's an awful lot of work to do to pull this all together in time for October 13th. Yeah, I mean, and when you look at the Pedersen and Hughes situation, forget the fact that they're the two most important players in the in the organization, but just when you look at the body count and what's left right now, it was imperative that they can actually ice a legitimate National Hockey League roster on opening night that these two guys get back in the fold. Yep. So I look at it now, I look at the deployment on Sunday. I mean, I certainly like what I saw from that line with with Horvat and Pearson and Hoaglander. I think he's looked very yep. impressive in this game, the really throughout the much Canucks. of the press season or preseason, I should say. Go ahead. No, he was just he was the best player for the Canucks on Sunday. I'll tell you another player that I like, uh, and I know he was minus two tonight, but I still like what I see from Will Lockwood on a regular basis. And, and quite frankly, I find him more noticeable than even a Pod Colson. Dare I say it? Yeah. Is there enough there for him to push the bottom of the lineup? Maybe, maybe, especially because he killed a lot of penalties in the American League a year ago, right? Like you'd think that he could be the third penalty killing forward on a fourth line that maybe looks like uh, I don't know, Di Giuseppe, Highmore, and Lockwood. I mean, at least that line has some speed. Like, that line will have an identity. They'll hit, they'll play in straight lines, and they can all kill penalties. I mean, it, it might not be the worst option overall. So, no, I mean, I don't think Lockwood's out of it, but I would say that he's, you know, got a hill to climb, right? The fact that he hasn't really been with the main group in practice suggests to me that he's got an awfully like steep hill to climb here if he's going to get back into this race. I don't know if he helped himself enough on Sunday, but I agree with you. I'm impressed every time he plays. But, you know, I'm also not worried if he goes down in the American League and plays 20 minutes a game, right? Like, that's not the worst thing for him, um, especially, especially if he's one of the first call-up options that they have and one of the safest guys to reassign seeing as how he's exempt. So from waivers, I mean, so, you know, we'll see, we'll see with Lockwood. I'm, I'm really curious to see where he lands. Gadjevich is the guy that I'm really sort of watching because I just can't see what he's done to not be ahead of 
a variety of guys that I don't think he's ahead of based on usage and, you know, overall, like the language of practice and on and on. You know, all of that is telling me that Gadjevich is also likely to end up on waivers and on the outside looking in. And, you know, I look at him and what he's done throughout training camp and in the preseason, and I just don't understand how on merit he's not ahead of a variety of guys that are pretty clearly ahead of him. You know, I throw like Chase on and Patan and, you know, uh, I mean, Highmore for me too, and, and definitely Pod Colson, right? Like if Pod Colson had had the training camp and preseason that Gadjevich had, you know, there we'd be we'd be fitting the statue uh, in this market, Farhan. Um, I'm the Pod Colson note you dropped, by the way, is an interesting one to me. I don't think he's been great, right? Like I don't think he's been yeah. particularly good. I, I don't think he was particularly good on Sunday, um, you know. But I don't see how he doesn't start the season on this roster for, for a ton of reasons. One being, you know, everything that he's had to do to be here in the first place. Two being that if he goes down because the Canucks are going to be an LTI, if he goes down and comes back up, he's a $1.7 million cap hit as opposed to a $925 million cap hit just because of the way that a player on an entry-level contract's bonuses get factored in to their overall cap hit when you're an LTI, right? I mean, sure. that's a huge factor. Like, that's an extra body. That's an extra 800K, right? Like, that's an extra player on the roster. If he goes down and comes back up, I, I'm sure the team will be very loath to limit their flexibility uh, to that extent, although maybe it serves their interest if they need to get close to the cap in order to uh, max their capture or something. But, you know, short of that, I, I think that's a reason to be extremely reluctant. And, and finally, you know, is he, like, he's played KHL for the last few years. Like, what does he have to learn in the American League, really, right? Like, he's already basically been in a league that's roughly equivalent in terms of quality. Like, the next step is to adjust to the NHL game and the speed of that and use your pattern recognition and, you know, figure it out at the NHL level. I just wonder if, you know, the idea of starting him in the top nine might be a bit lofty. Like, does he have to start? 10 minutes a night on a fourth line instead um, and adjust to the game that way. I don't think that's the worst case scenario by any means for a talented young guy who's physically ready to play, even if, you know, I haven't been super impressed with their performance, but I do think that this, this needs to start to probably be a point of discussion. I'm sure it is already internally. Um, you know, Pod Colson might not be the, third line winger for the first 10 to 15 games of the season that maybe the team was hoping for like that. And that's okay. That's totally fine. That's not a knock on him. It's just, you do have to find out where he's best suited to help you win and to help his development. Yeah. It's going to take some time. I think we all had these expectations about him jumping into the top nine right away. And we were even projecting lines that may have had him in the top six in order to have three balanced lines, but we may have gotten a little ahead of ourselves there. Um, the Canucks have also moved 16 bodies out of training camp. They've assigned them to different uh, places, whether it be the minors, whether it be the juniors, what have you. So I think when we, when we get back to practice, we're going to be back to one single group. So a guy like Lockwood's going to be able to get a bit more of a look in that setting. So that's a positive for a number of these players going forward. So we'll see what the next exhibition game looks like in terms of rosters. Still a lot of questions. We're still seeing too much of JT Miller at center. We're seeing Dickinson back at center. Uh, Rathbone and Hunt continue to impress on the back end. So lots to chew on as the week progress. 
progresses. Now, we had a bet. Didn't go through MGM.com or BetMGM that whichever team finished higher, the Blue Jays or the Mariners, the other guy had to buy seafood. So on the day where chaos could have occurred in MLB, it didn't work out for the Mariners. It didn't work out for the Blue Jays. Both of those teams are on the outside looking in. The Yankees and Mariners are in. But the Jays finished one game ahead. So I owe you seafood at your place of choice. So I do win. You Well, yeah. I mean, neither team went farther than the other, in my opinion. But a, a fan did point out on Twitter that, hey, wait a minute, they didn't finish in a tie. So for me, from a playoff perspective, they did finish in a tie. But Sad. technically, they didn't. So. Well, not technically. One team one team lost to a bad team today. One team pulverized a bad team today. And for most of the day, it looked good. Like, it took ninth-inning ninth heroics from both the Yankees and the Red Sox to avoid, you know, having to face the Blue Jays, who are far better than either team, uh, in a, in a single-game play. So, yeah, I mean, I think materially the Jays did, in fact, win. And the Mariners remain the Mariners. Hey, the Mariners <laughs> had a great run at the end. You know, the greatest clutch hitting team in baseball history let me, let me ask, ever. They're the what? The greatest clutch hitting team in baseball history ever. Where was that today? Where the was Mariners? that today? Wasn't there hmm. today. Yeah, they didn't have a great final series. There's no doubt. But they were one game away from making it and they could have made it. They didn't. So for you, it's all about regression and it was all destined to happen. But by the same token, the Blue Jays were destined to get in because they're clearly the best team. It didn't work out for them. Yeah, no, it didn't. And that's okay. And you are be... completely convinced that they're going to be great for years to come. Oh, yeah. 100%. And the Mariners, the Mariners, the Mariners, everyone's like, oh, look at their prospects. Look at their prospects. Prospects are for nerds. Like, prospect, people are like, people are like, numbers are for losers. And it's like, no, no, no. Hoping on guys who haven't proven anything at the MLB level. Like, that's for losers. Yeah, Great but for so many years, win. what we would hear is not only were they bad on the field, but there was nothing coming, that they weren't building it properly, and that there was there was nothing there, so it was such a train wreck. Whereas now, two years ago, they basically gutted their roster, tried to reset, and now they've been regarded by Baseball America, by the Sporting News, and other publications as having among the, if not the best, prospect pool in baseball. And for years, we used to hear that for, J for the Jays when they were... As bad as the Mariners. You know that 15-year run where both teams were really bad? Yeah. And then five, six years ago, the Jays got better. God bless them. And so maybe the Mariners took an extra five or six years, but we used to hear all those stories about the Blue Jays. Oh, their prospects are great. And next year, I mean, this, this isn't going to keep happening. They're ready to go. It's baseball, man. It's baseball. I hated those years of prospect watching. Like, Travis Snyder, yay. Like, nah, but you knew give they me existed. MLB players. Give me MLB players. Anyway, whatever. Um, they, I really enjoyed it. I was watching the game with uh, with a Mariners fan. Um, you know, my my old friend Cam Sharon today. He's a he's a Mariners fan. We were watching both games. We were watching a ton of football today. It was great. And uh, and I, you know, I was twisting the knife in uh, for him, thinking that the Blue Jays were looking good. And then, of course, the Nationals stomped all over my heart to the to the great oh. enjoyment of many on Twitter and also to him. And you know what, Far Farhan, people are like, "Oh, you're so salty!" Like. That's the fun of this. You know, like... You have fun. fun. I am impressed. I didn't yeah. expect to hear that. The fun of this is... The fun of this, like... the if, if, you know, after all my trolling, the Mariners and the Blue Jays had, like, both been in a zany play-in, 
You know what I mean? Like we would have gotten weeks of material out of that. I would have had weeks of fun, you know, tweaking Mariners fans for the their team being insanely lucky and like on and on. Like it's but fun you're telling to argue me that the fun doesn't matter. No, it's no, all no. about what, the numbers. What do you mean? I never say that. The fun, the, the numbers are fun for me. I wouldn't be so into them but if it's, I didn't it's enjoy okay it. Okay to follow something and just catch lightning in a bottle. It is okay. That is no, part is of okay. fandom. No, Whether totally. it's not realistic or sustainable, uh, you know what? Irrelevant. It's still fun. <laughs> I just I grew up with everyone always rooting for the underdog. And as I've gotten older, it's like I, I root for the teams that are well managed and smart, and those are often the best teams. And I like to see the good things rewarded as opposed to like the messy jumble created by some guy who's sort of like flying by the seat of his pants, just like catch lightning in the bottle. Like I don't root for stories like the Montreal Canadiens making the cup final. I don't want to see that. It's a good thing that we don't root for the Canucks and we just happen to cover them. No, but I'm saying pretty stories. much has been the definition. I'm of saying stories. Place. I sometimes root for stories though. Like I like, Oh, that's a great story. Like I'd love to see that. Like, I just want to see, I just want to see smart teams, well-run franchises get rewarded for doing the right thing. And, uh, and you know, I just think the Mariners aren't that team. But in terms of a story, in terms of a market that was aching for a reason to get back interested and back involved, if you watched anything there the last week or so, more than that, really the last month, they yeah, got I mean, back it, into they, it. They won like 11 of 13 at the end to have, a, to even put themselves in position. Like it was, a two-week story, and everyone's like, "What a great story!" But the it's Mariners. a good story, and it really, ah, August suck. the tenth was a seven-week story. They had the best record in the American League yeah, for seven weeks. Terrible. They're so a bad team. Regardless, it was fun. Yeah, bad. And team. for that market, go into the building. It was fun, and it yeah. it could provide a complete jolt to the franchise to say, "Hey, you know what? It's still there." We, we've got to prove it. We've got to show it. We've got to build on this. If I'm management, if I'm ownership, I look at that and say, wow, it's still there. It took that little to bring them all back. We got to get this figured out. Well, we'll see. We'll see if they spend. We'll see what they do this offseason. And we'll see if they come back and defy the gods of regression that suggests that they're a pretty mediocre team. And, but you can't uh, and- deny it was fun. I mean, you know, I like you don't care. It. Like you don't like them. You probably well, have grown fun. to hate I had them. Fun. I had but... fun beaking their fans, and like <laughs> I had fun. I had fun arguing with you. <laughs> no, so, that's yeah, good. I and and I don't fun. stand down from hopefully, it at all. Like I don't stand down from it at all. But it was a. It was fun. It was a good story. It was good but, for the city. It's a fantastic city. Well, and it's, it's a good it's a market. Good story. It's one that Vancouverites connect with, like it or not. No, and it's a good story for the Vancouver baseball fan too. Like if Vancouver can get to a point where. You know, there are a majority of Blue Jays fans arguing with a, you know, loud vocal minority of Mariners fans. Um, you know, I think that's fun. Like, that's good engagement. And then that'll bring attention to a sport that I, I love, like that I love. I love baseball. So, I, I mean, I'd enjoy that, too, if that's a multi-year talking point. I'm just saying I look at these two teams and I see one that's going to be good for years to come. And I see one that's, you know, maybe like a, a big hope bet. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. but. You know, I, I suspect a golden age of arguing about baseball in Vancouver is not nigh, and that anyone rooting against and hating to see uh, attention lavished on the Blue Jays uh, forced down our throat. Um, you yeah, know, that's me. You're, you're, I'm that you're, in for a, you're in for a long half decade. Let's just say that. Oh, I've heard that before. I'm not willing to to give into that quite yet. That's yeah, true. It was true. It was true ten years ago. It was true when you were a collegian going to Blue Jay games for no, next it to wasn't. nothing. 
No, it wasn't. Oh, come on. That team was awful. And the prospects, yeah, no one cared. It was just Roy Hall. It was the Roy Holiday show at that in those times. And it was great. I mean, I loved the Roy Holiday show. But hey, and I we, we had no pretensions about what the team was. Yeah, I don't buy that. I Because I heard year after year, the, next year, it's this close. It's close. They're going to do it. Come on. Yeah, maybe 10 years. Not 15 years ago. But 10 years ago, yeah, maybe. Maybe a bit. Like, Travis Darnold's going to be amazing. Yeah, okay. There was a bit of that. There you go. I'm glad you can admit it. Hey, the athletic <laughs> hockey show with Ian Mendez, and you pick your restaurant. I'm in. I'm not going to back down. Yeah, yeah. We'll do it. We'll, we'll, hit, we'll hit it up. The athletic hockey show with Ian Mendez, Haley Salvian, uh, Down Goes Brown, Craig Custins, Sean Gentilly, Max Boltman, Corey Pronwin publishes five times a week at the athletic, wherever you listen to your podcast. Ian and Haley have the first edition of the week on Monday. And as always, thanks for listening to the VanCast hockey and baseball edition. Please follow us on your favorite (laughs) podcast platform and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, annual subscriptions to The Athletic are 50% off when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. Vancast returns later this week. What day are we going to do this? Wednesday, Thursday? Yeah, I think probably Wednesday before the next game, but reacting to the like reacting to the next preseason game, but before the Thursday one. So yeah, I think we'll be back midweek with a second band cast for your earballs, And we will be previewing. <laughs> previewing, EP yeah, the Thursday game. Quinn Hughes getting into a preseason game. The big imagine? game Hughes. Oh, no, I mean, it's hockey preseason. Like, let's all, let's all be calm about what we react to in the preseason. Training camp matters more than the preseason for me, to be totally honest with you. Once we get in the preseason, like, I look around the league and I hear all these optimistic takes about players who will play, like, 50 NHL games in their career. And I'm always just like, oh boy, NHL preseason. Like, let's all be careful. Tread, tread, tread with caution, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you again later in the week.